Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Fadi Bukhara. Maybe you've never heard of him, or maybe you're already a follower of Fadi. Fadi has a, a brilliant account on all social media, Sidras K, that I will post also via uh, podcast notes. And essentially, Fadi is very much interested in providing sort of a history of uh, certain words, of uh, historical cultural facts that have to do mostly with the Middle East. But we should say that Fadi is a Dublin-based Lebanese, uh, formerly a photographer, and now, you know, working on his future. So, first of all, Fadi, welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, I want to introduce yourself first to all of the listeners. And I know for a fact that some of the listeners are already subscribing to your uh, reels. But can you tell us something about yourself, um, about your trips? I know you spent some time in America. And also, how did you start this uh, Cedros uh, K account? And uh, why working on words and on the etymology and the history of these uh, uh, words? Sure. Thank you for that. So as, as a background, I was born and raised in Lebanon, spent most of my life there. But then uh, in 2005, I went to the U.S. to get uh, my graduate degree. My background is I'm an engineer, but I got uh, a degree in finance over there. And then in 2016, when I was in Baghdad, I had a bit of an incident there and I decided to take a break from work. So I left and went to the U.S., got me an RV, uh, which is a, a camper, and just spent six months on the road in my RV touring all the towns called Lebanon in the U.S., and there's 47 of them. So I wanted to photograph them, meet the people, and all that. And initially, I had thought it was just going to be, what do you call that? It's kind of like a bit of a tourism thing, to be honest. But it just happened to be during the election season 
in 2016. So it unexpectedly became a chance for me to meet people from all over the U.S. and, you know, talk to them about, you know, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, everything about that. So just out of interest. And then in 2018, I went for a second trip because I wanted to plant cedar trees. And the reason I had to go and plant cedar trees is related to Jerusalem, by the way. So, well, I'll tell you a little bit about that. So I went on a second trip, also about uh, five, six months, planted 11 or 12 trees, I forgot, in some of these towns where the weather permits. Now I, and then I got a job offer in Dublin. I moved here. And then during the pandemic, I was stuck at home like everyone. And I thought, what if I make videos on words? Because this is something that interests me. And it's kind of like, why I why are words related across separate languages? So it was my first time doing anything like that, doing videos. So I posted on TikTok. Then I started this maybe a couple of months ago. I started uploading on Instagram. And I'm just happy that a lot of people are also interested in the commonalities that we have in the words that we say. So that's about it. I was curious about something. You're sitting in Ireland, which is a country yes. I lived in for a few <laughs> years. Uh, I never learned any Irish other than a few words here and there. And I was wondering in terms of the language, how the, you know, how was your experience of uh, Irish, not necessarily the language, but also the Irish accent. And, uh, you know, for someone coming from so different places around the world, particularly Lebanon and Iraq, you know, sitting in Dublin, well, I, I can tell you something about the language right away in that uh, I wanted to learn Irish. So I eat the, the Gaelic language, part of the la la Gaelic families. And the maybe it took me a week just to, to see what's going on. And it was kind of like one of the most shocking things for me. What, why is that? Because I do speak a few languages, you know, I've, I had to learn French in school for 12 years. I also speak English and all that. So I'm familiar with the European languages being uh, what we call SVO languages, subject, verb, object, right? So the only languages I know that are VSO, verb, subject, object, is Arabic, of course, and the other Semitic languages like Aramaic and Hebrew. And then you move to Ireland and it's like, how is that language structured the same way as a Semitic language? It's the, the sentence structure, the preposition, how there's agglutination and suffix. So that blew my mind. And then I went into trying to read the history of it. And there are theories saying that there is a Semitic substrate, or was it a superstrate? I forgot, into uh, the Gaelic languages or some of the Celtic languages. And some of them, well, there is one linguist, um, Veneman, Theo Veneman, who calls the branch Semitic languages. So they call he calls Celtic Semitic languages due to the influence. I don't know, like there's no consensus, of course, like it, it's a bit of a fringe maybe, but still to me, it's kind of like, oh my God, this is kind of like learning Arabic with different words about the Irish language. That's fascinating. But <laughs> because you mentioned that you study uh, French uh, in Lebanon, um, yes. I have a question about a word that you can find all across the Middle East, but particularly in the Levant. So Lebanon, obviously Syria and Palestine. So let's start uh, talking about words. Uh, yes. Which is uh, Ferengi or Fange. Obviously, yes. this is a word that comes from a long time ago, but it's still very yes. common in defining, let's say, non-Arabs in the region. Yes. Can you tell us something a little bit uh, 
um, about the origin of the word. Yes. Now, um, if I want to start about kind of like when we say the fringe or the fringe, um, yes, they mean the foreigners, but there are layers of who the foreigners are. If I may explain. So initially in Arabic, there was a word that was called al-ajam, right? Al-ajam, as a in, in its initial meaning, it meant people who are unable to speak or mutes, let's say. Uh, and that was applied to anyone who doesn't speak Arabic initially. But then in the Mashriq, in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean side of things, it applied mostly to the Persian people, right? But even though in the time of the Andalus, it also applied there. But in our side of the world, Ajam, it, the connotation is that these are the Persian people, right? So that's the first layer. But then there was the contact with the Byzantines. So these were called Arum. So there's the first layer of non-Arab, Al-Furus, and then there's Arum. And people think it's kind of like Arum sounds like Roman or Roman. But the idea is because Constantinople was the Eastern Roman Empire, so that became Arum. Uh, you might have known, like, even to this day in Lebanon, someone who is Greek Catholic or Greek Orthodox would be Rum Orthodox or Rum Catholic. That's what we call it. And then during the, so, sorry, Al-Ajam, Rum, then after that, during the 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 Crusades, when it was the Francia, the Frankish uh, uh, kingdom or empire, that's that name became as in, Initially, someone who is a crusader, the European, someone from there. But then eventually to, it came to mean any person who is from Europe, but not Greek. And to this day, it's been what, 1,500 years? No, not, not that much, 13 or something like that. To this day, we still use um, words that have the word frange in it. For example, uh, I myself would call a baguette. That means Frankish Frankish bread, you know, that it, it came from there. Um, the toilet, sorry for mentioning it, but uh, it's called, you know, like the toilet itself, uh, The it's called the it's kind of like the toilet that is frange, because the opposite of that would be where it is shaped like a hole in the ground, like how a Japanese uh, toilet might be that kind of thing you know and that word it has a bit of sensitivities when used in other contexts too uh we even have have a proverb that says kilshi franji branji which is said sarcastically in that everything that is foreign like frankish but from european it's as if it's anything uh, it's better than anything that is local it's not meant seriously. You say it in sar sarcastically. And you had mentioned Turkish, like kilshi franji branji. So branji is a word adopted from Turkish, which is, it comes from birinci, which in Turkish now it means first, but the way the connotation is, it means best in uh, the way we use it. Uh, wait, talking about franji, one more word, which is interesting, like the lettuce, right? The Romaine lettuce. So Romaine lettuce, even the word Romaine, because it, probably from Rome, you know, so for us, that's Hasifrangi. 
So guess so everything's that, that, fringe at some point. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that's what I mean. It's kind of like we have the photos, uh, the ajam, we have the room, and then we have the fringe. So, <laughs> but to keep this conversation also fun, I just want to say that yeah. in Italy, for instance, the toilet yes. that you mentioned, the one with the hole on the ground, is actually yes. called La Turca, meaning oh, the Turks. So wow. we can see how words travel and change. Uh, yes. You know, not meaning, because obviously the meaning is the same, is that I guess, I suppose, someone in Italy probably traveled uh, through the Ottoman Empire. So we, we, we yes. can speculate the Venetians or the uh, Genoese. And yes. when they saw that, you know, they probably brought it back. And I must tell you that for a very long time, probably up until the uh, 80s or 90s, most of the public toilets in Italy were a la turca because we're considered more yes. hygienic in a sense that you could clean them yes. easier. Uh, they yes. changed that, but absolutely very common. You know, you would drive yeah. throughout Italy and stop in uh, what we call autogrill, so uh, service stations, and obviously the restroom would have la turca. <laughs> so absolutely. again, uh, you see how these words uh, change. Yeah. And and it's important to know, notice here is that whenever we adopt something, a word, you know, be it food or a type of building, it's rarely that we take the name of the actual origin, but the name from the last person who we we got it from. It's kind of like you know how in Arabic we call the orange Portugal after Portugal, just because we got it from them, even though the Portuguese got it from China, the sweet the sweet orange. So it always happens like that. Or the million names of the turkey bird in different exactly. and, and you have a very good reel about the origin of the turkey, uh, which you. is a fascinating uh, crisscrossing of continents and names and people. Uh, but yeah. Because you just mentioned Portugal, for instance, in uh, in dialects in the south of Italy, particularly around Naples, the orange is called Portugal. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. again, all of these influences, which is yes. interesting and fascinating given the current political uh era and age of appropriation and you know claims that certain names are originally from one place they never change and they've always been uh, uh you know there and belong to specific group of people well the reality is that everything moves change uh is reshaped redefined and nothing is really static yes let well, me move to ask about uh okay. jerusalem yes because obviously this is a very controversial topic and yet uh, more, <laughs> I guess in time, people began to accept the fact that when we talk about Jerusalem, there are different names, and uh, each name represents different communities. Now, again, there are issues about uh, particularly the the Hebrew name, Jerusalem, which has always been defined as the city of peace. Now, more and more scholars agree that it's nothing to do really with uh, shalom, peace, but it's something different. But then, of course, we also have a Latin name, uh, which anglicizes Jerusalem, the Arabic name, Al-Quds. We also had, for a long time, the Roman name, Elia Capitolina. In fact, the early Arabs, when conquering Jerusalem, they called Ilia. Um, the very name Jerusalem, or again, Jerusalem, was Arabized for some time. I remember bumping into a document calling it uh, Urshalim. Uh, so obviously, we talk about a city, but we also talk about many different names. And so I was wondering if we can start this conversation about uh, the names of Jerusalem. Well, okay. As you said, it is a controversial subject, right? So, but talking about the different names, I want to draw something on a bit of a, I don't want to call it a paradox, but a duality among Christians in the Middle East. On what point? So, 
the city in Arabic, it's called Al-Idis, or Al-Quds in, you know, in the colloquial, we say Al-Idis. However, when it comes to the church sayings and how it's said in church or in songs, it's always Urashalim because it feels anachronistic to change these names and make them Al-Idis. So, for example, in Easter, there's a hymn that's called Turuqa Urushalim, the roads of Jerusalem. That's kind of famous. But it's a very clear delineation is that in that Urushalim is the Jerusalem brought back from when Jesus was there. And then Idis is the current meaning, uh, current word. And because it has this political weight, the word, because like you don't want to say Urushalim because like it feels like you're betraying the cause and it it's not the, the correct name in Arabic. Even though, as you said, uh, even among Arabs in early Islam, they did use Urashalim at some point. Uh, what's his name? That name of the poet, Al-Ashar. Al Al-Ashar, I, I forgot his name now. His name because uh, he had blurry vision at, uh, at, at night. So he used to use Urashalim. Or uh, Mru'ul Qais, He's one of the famous pre-Islamic uh, uh, poets, right? So he used to, how to say, he used Al-Quds. Well, not he didn't use Al-Quds. He referred to a priest from there as Maqdisi, which is kind of like the name that it it implies that it predates Islam, at least. Not Al-Idis, but maybe Bayt al-Maqdis or Al-Bayt al-Muqaddas, something like that. But also, as you mentioned, uh, Ilya, Ilya Capitolina, it was in Arabic for a long, 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 long time. Even the coins from the Umayyad that had Ilya. Or Al-Farazdaq, like he was one of the most famous poets in, the, I'd say, 8th century. He's a famous, so he has a big line that says, So it was, it was a very common name. So it wasn't until the 9th century really that Al-Quds became kind of like the name instead of Bayt al-Maqdis or Al-Bayt al-Muqaddas or Ilya or something like that. So the idea is that in early centuries I guess the people there due to the absence of such, I, I don't want to say an absence of such charged political context because they had wars back then but the idea of having multiple names was accepted. Now it's kind of like there's a line of in the sand. Are you a Jerusalem person or Al Quds person? I mean, that's how it is. Let me ask but, a, a question yeah. about uh, the, the sort of the, let's say the first name of Jerusalem, uh, which is probably coming from Aramaic or Jebusite names. So this idea of uh, Urshalem, Urshalim. Uh, and yeah. Ur obviously is a common term to define cities. I mean, even you know nowadays, uh, uh, yeah, certainly defines cities. So I, I was wondering, what's your take on uh, the idea that maybe the city of peace or maybe the city of a goddess? Look, how to say? My opinion on that is that of someone who is not an expert on the the time period back then. But I have read that there are. Um, Let's say records from the ancient Egyptian period where the name is cognate with Orashalim. Or it it does to me. It feels like it's the name of the the 
it's kind of like the goddess, but I can't really say, you know, like I'm not a scholar on the subject. However, I can tell you that in Aramaic, the word orishlim, we still use that in the churches where they the main the liturgical language is Aramaic. So we say orishlim dalai. So that name is still used. I'm curious about something. You have a obviously Lebanese roots, and uh, I never had the chance to ask someone that actually is from Lebanon. To ask about how do you see Jerusalem from just across the border? What what does Jerusalem mean for Lebanese? Whether you know Christians, and obviously if you may know also about uh, Muslims, uh, whether they may be Shia or Sunni, and other communities. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Of course, the answer will differ a lot by religion. If we're talking religiously, not politically speaking. So what does it mean religiously, right? So to me, it's kind of like we said, yes, it's across the border. And I know it's a city that my father visited because it was pre-1967. But after that, for us, like we can't go there. I mean, technically I can if I get... Uh, what do you call it? like a pilgrimage per- permit in Lebanon? But it feels like too risky. And it's like, what's the point to me? It's kind of like that kind of thing, you know. And it feels like it's a very important city. But religiously speaking, me personally, I don't feel that it's kind of like how to say the location, the 
the stones, something like that, have as much significance as they might be for people who are more religious, let's say, right? But for someone who is Muslim, for example, that the, you know, Dome of the Rock, of course, it has a lot of meanings for them there. I would love to visit one day, maybe, hopefully, but the most important part for me is not the religious part. It's the not even the political part. It's the it's the human part. As in, it feels like there's a little bit of, not a little bit, a lot of injustice going on there in how the Jerusalemite, who are Palestinians, are being driven out bit by bit from the city. So that's just, I want to say not acceptable, but who's doing anything? Well, as we record uh, this episode, uh, we saw... Uh, in fascinating events occurring uh, in Israel just a few days ago, uh, which were mostly uh, occurring because of internal issues, but obviously they are deeply connected with uh, with the Palestinians and, and the question of the occupations and obviously the eradication of Palestinian identity, particularly in East Jerusalem. So we, we understand very well what you were just saying. But you mentioned something very interesting, and let me pick it up from there. So you said, inshallah, one day you'll be able to visit. Yes. And... Uh, You'll be able to visit. You'll be able to go around the old city of Jerusalem, and you may end up trying to eat some of the local delicacies. Oh, geez. going back to words. Uh, obviously, Jerusalemites are very proud of their food, and there are some that uh, obviously may also trigger debates between Jerusalemites and uh, you know Palestinians of other cities. So let's start from the dessert, and maybe I'm going to ask you a few other things about other uh, food. What about knafe? Do you have any idea about the origin of the word? And also, I'm curious about uh, the knafe, and I know that you pronounce it also differently in Lebanon, or of the Lebanese version. Yes. So, yeah, we call it knafe. There's uh, a specific thing in the Lebanese dialect that's distinguished, and parts of Syria too. It's called imala in Arabic, where a lot of the a become e. So, knafe, for us, it's knafe, right? So, here, I want to say in that for a lot of our foods, be it knefe, be it falafel, be it tabule, if the etymologies of these words were clear, then everybody would know about them, right? If they are documented. For now, there are theories. That's about it. Because the idea is that etymology as a science in, in Arabic has been... I don't want to say non-existent, but it's not something like you cannot easily find an etymology dictionary for Arabic as you can for for English or French. Uh, oddly enough, I want to say sadly enough, maybe, but the first etymological project documenting the Arabic world uh, words is from the University of Oslo in Norway. It's th that that's it's the. What do you call it? The Department of Culture Studies and Oriental Languages in Oslo. That's who they're working on the etymology project. So for now, you can find a few things. But I can say for Knefe, there are some theories on that. But one of one um, theory on the Arabic origin is the 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 root kanafa or ktanafa or to sit by something. But it does not really make a lot of sense. You know, so it's kind of like there's a lot of theories on there. And I want to say that for us and for the Palestinians, knefe means the dessert. But in other Arab countries, 
uh, it does not mean just the dessert. It means that uh, shredded dough on its own, it's called a knefe even before it becomes a dessert. Like you could see someone in Egypt saying frying chicken in knefe. They don't mean a dessert. That means that shredded uh, pastry, which Turkish people might call kadayif, which for us is a different dessert. It's like it's a it's a it's a mess on these things. So there are theories. We don't know where they come where they came from. We don't know the exact origin, and we don't know the exact origin of the words. Unfortunately, sorry to disappoint. Well, so let me ask a big question: cheese or no cheese? Uh, what do you mean no cheese? Is that an option? No, of course. With well, cheese. as far as I know, the Egyptians there is a recipe with no cheese. So <laughs> I, I guess could be a good a good debate, right? A round table. Well, for, for us, there are two versions in Lebanon, right? The most popular one is cheese. The less popular one is is with ashta, which is kind of like the clotted cream thing. They're both good, but to me, the cheese is is better. And of course, as I mentioned, like the 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 nabulsi from Nablus, the Palestinian one, it's with the with that kind of dough. For us, it's a completely different one. It's from semolina, and we do have a version of the nabulsi knefe, which but on a smaller scale, and oddly enough, we call it athmali, meaning Ottoman. Yeah. There is a cultural bottle, and a serious one, to be honest, which also has uh, seen a number of scholars writing first PhDs and then books about falafel. Mm -hmm. I know, this is a big one. Uh, again, you go wander around the old city of Jerusalem, particularly in the, uh, let's call it now the Muslim quarter also. You know, we know that in the past was much more mixed than it is nowadays. There's still a couple of uh, uh, old men selling fresh falafel, uh, which is just amazing. You know, it's very heavy, but filling and very tasty. And yet, it's a contested dish. And I was wondering if you have any information about, uh, not who owns falafel, but uh, very much also about the origin of the word. Where is falafel from, for instance? Well, the, the kind of like the main origin now, I don't want to say it's accepted, but it's that it's a Coptic word, or it's Coptic multiple, multiple words, means plenty, or something like that. And if that was the truth, I would be very happy. <laughs> Why? Because uh, as part of my job, in a, in a previous job, I had to tour a lot of Arab countries, right? So I had falafel in, I don't know, maybe 15, 16 countries from the Arab world. And I became kind of a connoisseur on that. And I can say that to me, hands down, no one beats Egyptian falafel. And this is from someone from Lebanon. So if the origin is Coptic, then yeah, they they, they deserve that. <laughs> They're the masters. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, most of the Palestinian listeners of our podcast may have I'm sorry <laughs> about it. Uh, but through also of Israelis, which again is part of this cultural battle, which in time I understood, uh, you know, there is a bit of appropriation, obviously, which is true, uh, yes. given that most of Ashkenazi Jews made falafel some sort of an Israeli dish. But it's also true that there are, and now they're almost the majority of Arab Jews from different parts of the Middle East that brought, again, different version of falafel into uh, into then you know the state of Israel after forty eight. And so, it's interesting how you also see this kind of diversity, uh, particularly among the different communities. And uh, yes, uh, so th this has become a long story and one that obviously has no final uh, or end in sight. 
let me ask a few questions. You traveled a lot around the Middle East, and, and I'm curious yeah. about uh, perhaps a few other stories about food. Food is very important to define identities. As I said earlier, Jerusalemites are very proud of, uh, and again, it goes across communities, you know, like uh, there are dishes that defines the Jewish communities, the, the Muslims and Christians in different ways, obviously. And, and I was wondering if you can share with us uh, a few other interesting stories about specific food that defines the region. Well, I, I I wouldn't know if it's a if it's something that defined the region, but I one food that is something that I love is the msa'a, which which became a Greek food that's called the moussaka. And you know, like I have to be careful when we're talking about Greek foods and Greek words. Yes, but careful because like, when you talk about moussaka, then you jump into the idea of lasagna and you have an Italian in front of you. Yeah, yes, but what I mean is moussaka is not a Greek word. Moussaka is a transliteration of msa'a, which means cold. And it's interesting that, again, with Egypt, like they do it really, really well. But the difference is it's called, it's called msa'a, but they eat it hot, you know? And it's kind of like for us, it's kind of like we eat msa'a, but msa'a. But about the the foods, the foods that kind of like define the region, it's it's a little bit sad to me. It's kind of like on the evolution of food habits, there's not a lot documenting the area for how it is for us. So, for example, a lot of our foods in Mount Lebanon, you know, in the mountains, are stews, regular stews, right? But these stews would always be eaten on now, these days, with rice on the side. But in the up to the 19th, 18th centuries, around that time, rice was considered uh, rich people's food. It was never considered like the poor people's food. That's why we ate everything with bulgur. So that's why it's kind of like bulgur. And you might know kibbe. So the base of it is bulgur. Even during Lent, which is right now, there's a type of kibbe called kibbe hili or tricky trickery kibbe which is made by replacing all the meat with just a little bit of flour and and birgul. so birgul is kind of like uh, one of our key aspects one of the key aspects of our food and it'd be interesting to know how it disappeared a little bit as a staple of being eaten next to the stews and being replaced by by rice so i wouldn't call that a very fascinating story about the foods in the middle east but i would love to see an anthropological and historical culinary book documenting how food evolved in the Middle East, because there's not a lot of sources on that. No, it's true. There's not a lot of sources. Now you mentioned uh, kubbe or kibbe, for instance. I yeah. I, I know that uh, in, in what now we call Galilee or the northern part of the West Bank, uh, obviously kibbe is very common. But again, it also there is this continuity and contiguity with uh, Lebanon, which we should uh, remind uh, it was part of the Ottoman Empire for centuries. And again, people didn't have to cross borders rather than administrative ones. So food could have been, you know, just shared among communities uh, without the necessity of a passport. And so it was easier even for uh, these kind of cultural elements to, to move around. I'm curious about a few other words that, uh, you know, obviously originate in, in Arabic and had very important uh, repercussions uh, in the West, but also with Christians uh, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, when we think about uh, uh, alcohol, uh, you know, we have to remember this is an, an Arab word. And while Muslims may not drink alcohol, they can produce alcohol. 
and yes. alcohol uh, is very popular from Palestine, Lebanon, obviously in Turkey, under the name of uh, Rakhine Turkish or uh, Iraq in Arabic. And, and I was wondering, you know, if you have uh, perhaps uh, anecdotes about uh, the origins of the name and also the alcohol itself. Well, I, just about origins of names, because that came to mind now. The, a concept in linguistics which is called reborrowing, where a, lang a word starts from your language and then it goes away and it comes back to you in a completely different form. So, for example, the artichoke, right? So the artichoke, the origin of that name, how it came to be is from Andalusian Arabic, al-kharshuf. And a single piece of artichoke is al-kharshufa. It turned into Middle Spanish as al-karchofa, but then it went all around to Italy and it became artichoco. And then it went to the Levant, to us, and then through false etymology, we took artichoco and we made it ardi shauki. And ardi means of the ground and shauki means thorny. So it's kind of like a word that went from us, went away, and that came back to us in a completely different form. Al-Kharshufa became Ardishauki. So I, I love like how these words travel, kind of like... And uh, another one, uh, well, that didn't start in Arabic. That was just because it was something I was talking about yesterday, which is the word Levant. You know, it's kind of like Levant, and someone from the Levant is Levantino, who came from Venice through the Albanian sailors who obviously spoke Albanians and didn't, you know, the people in the Levant, Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, didn't understand what they were saying. So that word became as a euphemism for something that you don't understand. It's like, are you speaking Lewandi, which is the, the Arabized word of Levendi. So it's kind of like we are Levantines and we are saying the word Lewandi to mean something that is completely incomprehensible. Which, paradoxically, you may say in English is gibberish, which comes yes. from Arabic, uh, jabari. I mean, it's like yeah. the, under, yes. the, the fact that they couldn't understand him. So, was that gibberish? So, it's yes. fascinating uh, our languages. Yes, yes. And, and another word that um, you might think of, it's kind of like, for people who understand Spanish or um, or Portuguese, the word ojala or oshala in, in Portuguese, it's kind of like that came from... Uh, which is kind of like the other version of of inshallah and it became to them it's kind of like hopefully or something like that so so it, it's it's just fascinating the way you know like it, words is, are like gifts to be honest it's kind of like like gifts as in if they cross to another language i don't like to think of these things as appropriation in that whenever you don't have something as intentional it's kind of like, no, I'm not stealing your word. It's kind of like, it's just through contact. And the word traveled, and it might come back to you. You know, you start with Al-Kharshufa, and you come back with Ardishauke. This is beautiful. We were digressing now. I remember I asked you something about alcohol. And, and, and also, I remember that, for instance, uh, you know, in, in, there are speculation about the, the origin of the word in English, booze, as uh, in Istanbul, I'd say throughout the Ottoman Empire, often Christians selling alcohol they basically own these shops that were called Buza. So perhaps there's also a connection there. But yes. I was wondering if you know anything about, uh, again, you know, this famous uh, uh, drink, Rakir. Well, I mean, we, I'll say, for us in Arabic, we call it Arab, right? And Arab and Raki and Rakir, they sound similar. But it's kind of like, are they from the same 
root, let's say, or did one, because if you look at the Arabic origins, as per the people who uh, like to the, the, the do the distillery thing, you know, uh, the idea is that you have the karake. I forgot what the name of the thing in, in English is that thing where you boil the boil the grapes with the aniseed and it goes up, right? And because of the sweat that you have on the copper, because it used to be copper, so the sweat in, in Arabic is ara. So the drink name ara is the same word as the sweat. But is that related to raka? I, I honestly don't. I, when I, what I mean is that, is it related, as in, is it documented, is it not uh, false etymology or folk etymology? Because for uh, we always have to be careful when it comes to these Arabic, because there's a lot of theories, and you don't want to, you know, you want to just be sure what you're talking about. I have one last question. Is sure. there any word or idea that while you were researching for your reels, stood up and you feel like, wow, I didn't know this, and kind of shocked you? Uh, yes, Afandi. Afandi, because that word, we use that to mean, how to say, it. so it, it came from the Ottomans, right? So Afandi, uh, which means someone who has a certain rank, right? And we, now we use it sarcastically in, in, in Lebanon. So you call it like, Shubeke Afandi. That's like, who do you think you are? Something important. But in Egypt, for example, it still has returned, uh, retained this respect, uh, respectful meaning. So like offending. And then it turned out that the word came from authenticos, which is Byzantine Greek. But it, it came from ancient Greek as in authenticos. And it's the same root for someone who is authentic. So that word offendi from authentic. It also, um, another, another word that I like, because it's always that interconnection between ancient Greek and Ottoman Turkish and then in Arabic, uh, which is um, the word for parsley. So the word for parsley in ancient Greek was Macedonesi, um, uh, I forgot, uh, Petrosilium. Macedonesi Petrosilium, which means uh, rock celery from Macedonia, right? So this Makedonisi, which and now it's Makedonisi in modern Greek, turned into Arabic as Bakdunis, which is the same word that we use when we say Makduni, as in someone from Macedonia. So it turned out that Bakdunis is the same thing as Al-Iskandar al-Makduni, Alexander of Macedonia. So to me, that's like that blew my mind when I so I mean. You have to be a word nerd to be impressed by something like that. But to me, that was like, oh, my God, that's so awesome. You know, so. This was Fadi Bukharam. Uh, <laughs> you can find him on all social media under the nickname uh, Sidras K. And I will post uh, uh, the full link on uh, the podcast note. It was a fun conversation. We learned a lot about interesting words. Fadi, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very, very, very much for having me. It was great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. These days, having versatile clothing you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes all sorts of versatile anyweather staples, hoodies, jackets, and more. Whether you're buying a gift or stocking your closet, you'll find just what you need. And it's all made right here in the USA. Find your new wardrobe staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code AnyStyle24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code AnyStyle24.